We don't know what we don't know. And at the same time, what we do know might not be as solid as we think. Emanuel Swedenborg was both a scientist and a theologian, two areas of research which to be done well require a high level of humility. And he was up to the challenge. Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, where we discuss the substance of belonging. Next, Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor of the New Century Edition translation of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, sets the record straight on who exactly were Swedenborg's booksellers when. Then we travel to 1688 or 1689 to celebrate Emanuel Swedenborg's birth and muse on the relative nature of time this week in history. All right. Hey, Curtis. Hello, Chelsea. Hey, it's great to have you here again on another lovely episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Wouldn't miss it. I know. And it's an exciting one because this past week on the channel, we were exploring You Will Find Somewhere You Belong. It's awesome. I feel like that's that's the, the message I live for. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and yeah, so that... Uh, episode can be watched on our YouTube channel um, and or of course listen to as a podcast on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel and we've got a reflection question to uh, discuss together and so I'm going to pose it to you ready sure. yep all right it is what makes you feel like you belong I haven't thought about this at all <laughs> yeah so. it's an impossible question <laughs> yeah. it's a trap it's a trick what? question yeah, maybe it is. No, I know. And I guess we we get into a, a bit of semantics here because you can define what it feels like to belong in quite a few ways. But for me, it breaks down into two categories. One is I feel like I belong when I'm understood and paid attention to. Like if mm-hmm. I have needs, having other people care what those are know what those are and and are able to aid me in some way that that deals with those particularly really makes me feel like okay I I belong here but I think that the the one that is even maybe more potent is I feel like I belong when there is a something outside myself that I feel good identifying with so if there's something that I that like you know i think about some of my like my favorite companies or favorite philosophies something that i feel mm-hmm. like yes i want to promote the existence of that there's a sense of belonging in entrusting particularly things that i'm not even really involved with any of the creative direction on that i can feel like wow who, i i just love what those people are thinking up and i want to be part of supporting that like i feel like i belong to this movement um, because I, I like what comes out of it. Those are a couple of things that, that strike me initially about it. Nice. That's great. I like that uh, angle of thinking about it. And it gave me some time to think. And um, for me, I guess what's coming to my mind now is that it's like uh, when I feel like I have a sense of purpose, then like purpose goes along with belonging to me. Um where it's like, if I feel, which I guess, yeah, that's like the usefulness factor, you know, like if I feel like there's a, 
if I have purpose in this moment or whatever the setting is, whatever the circumstances are, then I feel like, yeah, I belong here because I'm um, doing something good. And even as I'm saying that, I feel like there's always that qualifier. I mean, maybe that's like the lesson of belonging that I feel like uh, I always that can be hard to work with is is that we have an inherent belonging just by being here, you know, so it isn't it isn't all about doing, you know, like we don't earn our belonging. Uh, but but I guess it's definitely true that when I have a sense of purpose, then I get that feeling of belonging, you know, I guess. Yeah, yeah right. But we don't even though we like technically everybody belongs because nobody's an accident and we're each a an embodiment of some aspect of God and the divine plan. It doesn't feel like that usually. Right. And <laughs> I feel, well, there's so many shades on the word belonging. Now that I'm thinking about it, looking at the, you know, the year 2020 and, and the pandemic sweeping the world and in the United States, just this absolute period of people not really liking each other very much along political divides and things and and all the sort of nastiness that came out around pandemic and how do we deal with it and lack of efficiencies when society feels like it's not really well put together and when there's not doesn't seem like there's that love of the neighbor and love and wisdom are are ruling it mm-hmm. does feel like wow i i wouldn't have labeled it as this but you feel like wow i don't i don't fit here like i don't not that oh i would belong in some other society but you lose your sense of hey we're there's i think you have a background sense of this is a i, I i'm at home with my fellow human beings and when there's a huge disruption to the way we cooperate that that can really take a toll. Like I feel like it took a toll on me to be to to realize, oh wow, what what's really holding us all together? Are we really all in this for each other or what? You know? Yes, and that that actually connects with this um extra tidbit that we had this idea that we didn't get to include in the show, but kind of r- goes along the lines of what you're just talking about, where, uh, you know, we of just sort of what makes heaven and that that belonging is really you know heaven is a place where people feel like they belong and so there's this way that um, Swedenborg puts it in last judgment uh, paragraph number 12 he writes heaven's form is like the form of the human mind whose perfection grows as the mind gains more goodness and truth leading to greater intelligence and wisdom and so I feel like I could think there's sort of two angles on that one is that we are those forms of goodness and truth that add to the perfection of heaven. You know, we get to participate in that. So that's part of our inherent belonging. But then also that we can make the world feel like a place where people belong more and more through, through increasing the goodness and truth, you know, having that emphasis on mutual love and serving the common good and things like that. You know, like it's fun to think about not just, whether we belong, but sort of doing the work that can make the world be a place where everyone feels like they belong. Yeah, I love that. And I really find some comfort in the idea of goodness and truth leading to the perfection of form. Because Mm -hmm. when you just think about something 
that doesn't have an obvious tangible form like let's say human society or your mental experience the sort of disparate elements of your life it just can seem like is there even something concrete that you could push toward that would be more peaceful and happy and stable it just seems like a, a wide open field but with something like that has a definite form like the human body you you can know that look there's things can be out of whack but there's a definite form called health that we're trying to get yes. back to yeah. and that that achieving that form will lead to oh, when you feel healthy it's just beautiful it's just a great time to exist and so to think that the goodness and truth that the way that they ripple out through heaven through society that through individuals that that is not just okay let's keep adding goodness and truth that that is somehow perfecting a form that knows how to accomplish its own state of health that there's something we can god's providence is pushing us toward that's really reassuring that's awesome yes i love that well so those are those are some thoughts from us about belonging and you can read others responses or leave your own still on our community tab or any of our social media channels to this interesting question about belonging. And we'll be posting a new one every week on Thursday paired with our next Swedenborg and Life show. And so looking forward now, this coming week is a break week, but it will be followed by a new episode on February 1st that is the earliest source of ancient wisdom and how it was lost. And so in that Swedenborg and Life episode, we're going to be exploring um, what Swedenborg says about this thing called the ancient word and what it's like and what remnants of it are still with us today. So that'll be airing on Monday, February 1st. And so thanks, Curtis. How could you not want to know what's up with the with the ancient wisdom? If we're talking about love and wisdom pushing us into this form, we need all the yes. wisdom we can get. Yes. There's a timeless element to that wisdom. So it'll be really interesting to to explore that topic with people. Um, and so stick around because we'll be uh, exploring with you at the end of the show where Swedenborg was this week in history, in the timeline of history. But in the meantime, uh, you can think about whether... Your birthday seems like the right fit for your spirit. Hey there, we've done six months of Inside Off the Left Eye, and we're having a ball. But what has it been like for you? If you have a minute, there's a link in the description of this episode to a simple three-question survey. We want to keep creating a podcast that you love, so please let us know what you think. Now, back to the show. Okay, now it is time to shine the spotlight on the discoveries being made in the work of the NCE. And so, Jonathan, which of the sticky notes on your desk do we get to dive into this week? Well, this week I'm thinking again about publishers and printers and things like that. There was some interesting information that was unearthed when I was working on the introduction to the Shorter Works of 1763. And that concerned the identity of this printer... They were actually two booksellers who were also printers and publishers mm-hmm. mentioned in Swedenborg's book, Marriage Love. So in 1768, Swedenborg published Marriage Love, and for the first time, 
you remember in a previous podcast that Swedenborg had published all these works anonymously Mm -hmm. and didn't even say who the publisher was, sometimes didn't even say the place that they were published, and sometimes would just say London, but no list of a publisher and so on. Mm -hmm. So in 1768, he finally puts his name on the title page of these works and thinks to put an extra page at the back of the book saying, these are the other theological works that have been published by me. And he lists his works up to that point. Secrets of Heaven, the 1758s, the 1763s, Divine Providence, uh, Revelation Unveiled. And and, um, then he says, after listing all those, because how else would you know? If he was publishing anonymously, that's sort of the hazard. Oh, he claims them. You're right. He claims them. You know, that was me. He finally says, not only that this work, Marriage Love, is by me, but also these other works were by me. Yeah. And then he says, almost like the ads that you get in the back of a book nowadays sometimes, uh, these books are still for sale in London in two different places. Uh huh. And to really get into the meat of this, and I love how these little tiny points can sort of explode into a whole universe somehow sometimes. <laughs> yes. But what he says is there are two places you can get this. Apud, which is a Latin word meaning... Uh, at the home of, uh, at the business of, or things like that, almost like the French chez, like mm-hmm. chez Louis or something, you know. And so, uh, and then he's got two names and, and addresses mm-hmm. with M-I-S-T-R period, and it's capitalized, M-I-S-T-R period, heart, H-A-R-T, and he breaks into English there and says, in Poppings Court, Fleet Street. Okay. And Apud, you know, still in Latin and then shifts again to English. M-I-S-T-R period. Lewis, L-E-W-I-S, um, Paternoster Row, near Cheapside, he says in English. Yes. So, people have assumed that these were two people who were known to be his publisher and printer uh, back in 1749 and early on with Secrets of Heaven, his publisher was John Lewis, who we talked about last time, and his wife Mary, and John Hart. So here you have M-I-S-T-R Hart, and the address is the same, and you have M-I-S-T-R Lewis, and the address is the same. And it says printer next to M-I-S-T-R period heart. Uh, and that is who his printer was and the other he considered his publisher. Uh-huh. So the fact that you have the names align, the addresses align, the occupations align, it's made people who have translated and published this page in Latin editions and so on uh, write M-R period Hart, you know, meaning Mr. Mr. Hart. Mr. Hart. And Mr. And Mr. Lewis. And Mr. Lewis. Yeah. And uh, some have even been so bold as to put in the first names to say Mr. John Hart and Mr. John Lewis uh-huh. in there because we, you know, we know this. Well, as I was doing this research, that identity crumbled for certain reasons. <laughs> And I want to take this sort of from least to greatest or something. You know, there's various different arguments that weigh on the other side of the issue. 
It's very interesting to me that a number of translators and publishers didn't even include this page. It just seemed like an ad at the back of the book, like, who needs it? Yes, uh, right. But the ones that did would render it Mr. or Mr. John and so on. So here's one issue. Um, let's just start with a tiny little point about abbreviations. Well, <laughs> yes. in English, how do you abbreviate the word apartment? Uh, APT? APT. How do you abbreviate the word appointment? APPT. Right. Okay. So how did you arrive at that abbreviation? You leave a bunch of letters out. Yeah. Right? That's how you do it. Mm-hmm. But in Latin, and certainly in Swedenborg's practice, that's not how he did abbreviations. When he's abbreviating his own first name, which he does quite a lot, yes, he never says E-M-N-L or, or something like that. He will say E-M, right. and then if he's handwriting, he'll put in a colon, two dots. And that colon means, you know, abbreviation. Like it's like our period. Mm-hmm. E-M colon Swedenborg or E-M-A-N colon. Mm. So you notice in both of those cases, he just left off all the other letters of the word. Iman, yeah. You know, and so the, the dot dot just means you can fill in the rest from here kind of thing. But you have a whole, it's not like APT where you can't, you know. Yes. Like those letters occur in that sequence in the word apartment, but it's a different kind of abbreviation. So this is what he would do. So M-I-S-T-R period for Mr. Well, there's an E in there. And wait a minute. Are you telling me, A, that he did a different practice with abbreviations by leaving out a letter in the middle of something? And B, if you leave out an E and stick in a period, you really haven't gained much. (laughs) <laughs> Have yes. you? It's not like you've saved a huge amount of expensive paper by swapping E for period. You yes, know? to spell the word Mr. Right, quite exactly. Quite makes sense. Uh, a more serious argument is that that is not what people were called back then in the same way. Aha. Uh-huh. It's very interesting that nowadays that's, you know, formal address, you know, Mr. and Mrs. and, and so Yes, on. right. But uh, not back then. There were two words that have, we still know these words, but these words have taken on very different connotations. But there was a term of address. If you were not dealing with a lord or one of the knights, you know, the knights mm-hmm. would be called sir and, and all that. Um, but everybody else... If it was a man, you call them master. Master. And if it's a woman, mistress. Mistress. Okay. Now, master sounds to us now like a slave, you know, master slave or something. And that's not what we use anymore. Uh, Mistress sounds like an ongoing adulterous situation or something, you know. (laughs) a kept person or, or whatever. And so that has a very different tone to us now. It's almost like, oh, I wouldn't use those words. You know, they're, I don't know, they're unpleasant. Right, right. But no, that was the absolutely appropriate formal address. And Mr. didn't get much used. I looked in the Oxford English Dictionary and Mr. actually used to be a noun, meaning a service or an occupation. It's an interesting word. Oh, it interesting. kind of evolved over time. So we've got Mr. and Mrs. nowadays, but back then it was master and mistress. Right. 
And I'll give you a little bonus point. If you look in the dictionary for MR period, what does that stand for? An MRS period? Right. It says master and mistress. That's where those abbreviations came from. Again, in the English way of doing it, where you leave a bunch of letters out of the middle, you know. Uh, But it actually says that still for Mr. and Mrs., even though we say Mr. and Mrs., but it was originally master and mistress. So, huh. Well, what did Swedenborg call these people? You know, that would be really, really helpful to know. Was he, would he think of Lewis as Mr. Lewis or Master Lewis. Right. So I was so blessed as to find, I never knew about their existence before, but we have not one, two, three, four, but five draft letters in the manuscripts to Secrets of Heaven in which Swedenborg drafts letters in the English language. Now, this is a guy, Swedish was his native tongue. Yes. And he knew Latin well, and he knew some German and French and so on, but... But, and, um, but here he is writing letters in English to communicate with his printer and publisher and so on. Hmm. And we have these drafts, five letters. Well, in every one of these letters, he addresses either Hart or Lewis or a third person named Lindegren, about whom I don't know much, but interestingly Swedish-sounding name. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's writing to them in English. And in every case, he uses one of two forms, either M-A-S-T colon uh-huh. or M-A-S-T-E-R, spelled all the way out. Interesting. Fascinating. So yes. it seems conclusive to me that the way he thought of Lewis was Master Lewis. He wouldn't yes. call Master Lewis Mr. Lewis like that wasn't a thing. Yes. You know? So what's going on with this M-I-S-T-R period? Yes. Well, uh, so Master Lewis, Master Hart, Master Lindegren, that's what he uses every time there. So now we get to the most uh, thumping piece of evidence, which is that sadly John Lewis, and this was a thing that was not known for a, a long time. I think we may have been the first Swedenborg publishers to to mention this fact in, in print. I don't know. Huh. But John Lewis died on May 13th, 1755, 13 years before this statement was made. Wow, yes. John Hart, we don't know his exact death date, but his burial date was November 21st, 1762, six years before this statement. And I tend to think that you're buried pretty close to the time that you die. You know, they don't hang around with those things for a month (laughs) or something. So it's fair to say that he died in November of 1762 because we have this from burial records at the church. Okay, we have a little cognitive problem there then. This couldn't Mm -hmm. be his John Hart and his John Lewis. Oh, maybe they had a son called John or something like that. Well, no, um, one of them had a son. uh, John Hart had a son named Harris but he was quite young at the time that he passed away. And John Lewis had only a daughter, and she married someone named Henry Trapp, who took over the business, but he didn't take over the business until 1776. Oh, wow. Eight years later, and Harris Hart took over the business in 1769, one year later. Oh, wow. So there's a gap in there. 
of some years. Now, as we talked about last time, we know very well who filled in the gap for John Lewis. Yes. That was his <laughs> wife, Mary. Yes, famous publisher, printer, yeah. That's right. right, for a long time, did a great job, got to be very well 30-year career, yeah, amazing. Yeah. Let's go back to that page in 1768. Well, we know who that was, who was selling his books in London. That was who you might refer to as Mistress Lewis. Yes. M-I-S-T-R period. Mm. Mistress Lewis. But wait a second. There's M-I-S-T-R period heart. Now, John died, you know, six years earlier, and the son only took over a year later. Is this Mistress Hart? Yes. It kind of seems like it has to be because if it had been male, he would have called him master. Right. And he matches it. Yeah. The Mistress Lewis. So the fascinating conclusion of this little rabbit hole is that in this book, Marriage Love, which is the very book that I talked about last time that talks about the difference between forensic and domestic uses and male and female and that sort of thing. <laughs> yes. Uh, the only two businesses <laughs> on the planet where Swedenborg says you can buy his this book and other books seem to quite clearly have been run by two women, yes. Mistress Hart and Mistress Lewis. I rest my case. Oh, wow. <laughs> two women business owners of the 18th century. That is amazing. And it fits okay because it was... Domestic, you know, you published out of your own house. And yeah, that the happened Apple all the time that wives right. would take over their husband's business. And so, you know, th that was a thing back then. Oh, I love that. And talk about the value of, you know, digging into these rabbit holes and exploring them because that's unearthing something that has been misrecorded, you know, to make that jump and just see Mr. written on the page and turn it into Mr., as we would say, MR period, Hart or Lewis, just, you know, erases something that was there. So we've, you've rectified the, the record. That's amazing. Hmm. And something that I certainly understand how our forebears arrived at that, because John Lewis's death date was very difficult to find. Yeah, right. And uh, so they didn't know. They didn't just have it written down somewhere. It's not like he was a nobleman where they record these kind of things. And and yep. so uh, that was difficult to find. So I get the fact that, well, we know he was there earlier. So probably another 19 years later, that, that's still him. Right. Uh, but I must admit, it was just really stunning to me to uh, make this discovery. I love that. It really gives a, a living sense to to history that there's more to be discovered and it just, you know, encourages us to to hold what we know lightly. You know, we don't know what we don't know. And that's good to remember. That's right. <laughs> oh man. Well, thanks so much, Jonathan. And this has been so fun, but let's put on our party hats now to see where Swedenborg was this week in history.
Okay, so here we are now to see where Swedenborg was this week in history. But first, Curtis, does your birthday seem like the right fit? Yes. It does? Great. Tell us more. I Well, I struggled to answer this as anyone would because it's such a weighty question. How does one know whether one's (laughs) birthday is a fit? By what criteria? (laughs) And these are the ones I've chosen. I love my birthday. I, that my birthday, um, it just, the, when I hear the month and the date, I feel like, yes, that's me. And it's in the fall and I love the fall, uh, probably because when I was a kid, my birthday was in it. I don't know. Nice, but yeah. <laughs> I, I don't feel at all. It doesn't feel alien to me. It feels like, oh yes, the most beautiful day of the year. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great. And so this week in... 1688, going all the way back to the uh, 17th century, right? Swedenborg was born. So happy birthday, Emanuel Swedenborg. Happy birthday. Yeah, okay. We're not going to sing the whole song. (laughs) Wait, I'm just getting warmed up. Okay, (laughs) That would be disastrous. Um, But so there's a big old asterisk on that statement that this week in 1688, Swedenborg was born because... Both the week and the year of Swedenborg's birth are somewhat moving targets. Um, And so that's this interesting history that we're going to explore this week. Um, One is a little bit more historical uh, and the other one is a bit more, gets a little more theological. So we'll go in that order. Um, So Swedenborg's birthday is mostly celebrated and recorded as January 29th, 1688. So that's that's coming up. And But the tricky thing is that back in 1688, there were two calendars in use in Europe at the time of his birth. And one was called the Julian and the other one was called the Gregorian. And so the Julian was what's called the old style and it had been in use for centuries since the time of Julius Caesar. And little trivia tidbit, I feel like maybe I've learned this before, but I relearned it this week, which is that um, in that calendar, March was the first month. That was the new year. And so that's why we call September. It has that seven sept in it. And October has the eight. November has the nine. December has the 10. Because March was the first month of the year. Um, But... It had that going for it. What it didn't have going for it was the fact that it was actually pretty inaccurate (laughs) when it came to the actual passage of time. So over the centuries, it got more and more out of sync with how, uh, you know, the actual solar year goes, like when the equinoxes happen and the solstices. And um, so that's why this new calendar was developed. And it's called the Gregorian because... Pope Gregory the 13th was the one who authorized it in like 1582 or something and that was called the new style so at the time of Swedenborg's birth I told you this is just very historical stuff but (laughs) still useful interesting information right um the Julian calendar was still in use in Sweden even in 1688 because Sweden didn't switch to the Gregorian one until 1753, like halfway through or more than halfway through Swedenborg's own lifetime. Um, And when they made the switch, the two calendars were 11 days off from each other. And so, dun-da-da-dun, in the new style, in the Gregorian calendar, Swedenborg was technically born 
on February 8th. Phew. Um, yeah, so that's fascinating. So well, Everyone says Swedenborg on, was so smart. He had to be to keep up with the calendars. Right. I, guess, I know. <laughs> Made a, a very headache, mathematical. Right? Yeah, so he... It was January 29th in Sweden when he was born, but it was February 8th, like in Italy and other places. Man, Um, jet lag. Yes, already 11 days behind or ahead or I don't know. Um, And so it was actually, yeah, technically 10 days in that century. And then it shifted to 11 days the next century because every century you would lose. You get a little a further away. <laughs> yes. And that's why when they made when they switched to the Gregorian calendar, they pulled the leap year from the centuries. Or or three uh-huh. of the four three of every four centuries, you pull yes. a leap year and that helped correct it. Got it. It's I feel like I it takes a lot to wrap my head around this, so I'm sure this might be a a lot to be taking in for our dear listeners. But generally, like through history, Swedenborg's birthday has been celebrated as January 29th. And and that's like when it was recorded, you know, his birth record has those words written on it. But we get to celebrate his birthday twice. So yes. <laughs> we've got the, the January 29th, but then the real, you know, if you want to actually celebrate the year of his birth, it is February 8th. And Maybe we'll do a little shout out to him in our next uh, episode. That's like the trickiness about the week of his birth. Wasn't quite this week in history, but it kind of was. Um, There's this fascinating history to the year of his birth as well. And this gets into the nature of the, you know, the nature of time in the physical world versus the spiritual world. And so Swedenborg had a good friend named Thomas Hartley who lived in England. And in 1769, Thomas Hartley had the brilliant idea to ask Swedenborg to write himself a short biographical statement um, that Hartley and others could use to defend Swedenborg's reputation and like the nature of their writings, um, of his writings against slander, if that came up, you know, if there was... um, which it did. I mean, obviously, we had just been talking about in, the, in another episode about how um, his works were put on trial, you know, were accused of heresy in Sweden. And so Swedenborg complies and, and writes Thomas Hartley this short biography of himself, which has been this invaluable record in for like historians of Swedenborg because you have Swedenborg himself giving a little rendition of here's my life this is what happened to me and so it's really interesting to compare it to the you know what else we can piece together in the historical record about him um but amazingly in this thing you'd think how hard is it to get the year of your birth right you know (laughs) but Swedenborg wrote 1689 instead of 1688 for mm. the year of his birth. I Mathematical mean, can, and, genius. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so there has been debate through the years about whether this was an intentional thing on Swedenborg's part or just an accident. So what's interesting about this is that we have this fascinating testimony from another friend of Swedenborg's named, um, or who is the general Christian Tuxen. I don't know anything about who this guy was. Do you happen to know, Jonathan? I don't know if you were doing any research I, on this, but... I'm thinking Danish. Um, 
That's right. That's he about was all Danish. I've got in my head. Yeah. Okay, great. So they Swedenborg and this Tuxin guy knew each other and and Thomas Hartley when he got that letter from Swedenborg, he he published it. You know, it was like um great, here's this record from Swedenborg, I'm going to publish it. Uh and so Tuxin had read it himself and had the opportunity to talk with Swedenborg and say, "Hey, uh you put your birth year as 1689, not 1688. Was that on purpose? Um, and then what we have is that 20 years later after that conversation, Tuxin records his memory of Swedenborg's answer to that question. And what we have is Tuxin, what Tuxin wrote in Danish initially that we then, that, which then has been translated into English. And here's the interesting answer that Swedenborg gave. So he said, was this just a fault in the printing? And Swedenborg answered, no, but the reason was this. You may remember in reading my writings to have seen it mentioned in many places that every figure or number in the spiritual sense has a certain correspondence or signification. Um, And he added that when he had first put the true year in that letter, so he's writing Hartley's biography and he put 1688, an angel present told him that he should write the year, you know, he should write 1689 instead as much more suitable to himself than the other. And he said uh, that the angel told him, you know, with us, time and space are are nothing. Um, and so Swedenborg says, that's, that's why I wrote it as 1689 rather than 1688, that an angel telling him, this is sort of a better fit for you this year for whatever reason. And Another interesting anecdote that Tuxin adds on to this is he says uh, he acknowledges to Swedenborg that it feels impossible for him to remove time and space from his thoughts in reading his writings. And he remembers Swedenborg answering um, that it took him some time before he could do it, but that he would show and teach Tuxin, you know, in what manner he could sort of start to practice taking time and space out of his thoughts and that he gave him some like very rational explanation or something. Um, So what do you guys think? Do you think it's true or a mistake? There have been like uh, interesting conversation about this through the years. I never heard any of this. This is like fresh, (laughs) fresh turned earth. And well, I'm just thinking of how liberal Swedenborg was with the details of the Bible, as I've heard from Dr. Rose and others, that at times it seemed like time and space, that the idea of him, oh, well, it's a better fit for it to be this. Sure, that seems in line. It fits the vibe. And the vibe is quirky. There's so much about the interface between the physical and spiritual world and about encountering even super loving and wise beings. Think back to Swedenborg's earliest encounters. There's just this quirkiness to it that I think it's on brand. Yeah, and it seems kind of um, unusual to find out that angels were sort of pressing him or suggesting something on some point like that. Um, But gosh, he's a good sport. Well, let's just say your birth year is different. Oh, okay. In, in this thing that you're using to convince the people of the world that you're credible. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like when not to make a mistake. 
That is good. And Chelsea, you and I were just talking about the um, uh, that list at the back of Marriage Love where Swedenborg goes over his previous works. Yes. That's full of bad dates, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, gets works in the wrong order, uh, doesn't seem to know when Secrets of Heaven started and ended and so on. So it's just interesting to wonder were similar things at play there. And again, it's a very sort of workmanlike list of here here are my other works. But to get numerous dates wrong in that list has also caused some scholars consternation. Yes, I guess that's what's so funny about it to me is that like, I feel like there's a spectrum. Either it's like very much, oh, a total mistake, you know, just he's He's doing so much, it just, you know, some of these things just fall by the wayside and he loses track of the dates or something. Or the other end is it's all very sort of purposeful and has deep meaning and, you know, significance. And I think there's something in between the two, which I think gets at the quirkiness, Curtis, where it's like there's purpose to it, but at the same time, it's really just like, not needing to hold so tight to the natural world, like, and the way things go right. here, you know, like, oh, this happened before that, oh, whatever, you know, I mean, things keep, let it roll off your back or something, and like, uh, oh, was I born in 1688 or 89? Yeah, what difference does it make? You know, like, 89 is a nice number. Because <laughs> like, yeah. we, we can feel so tightly gripped to, like, this is the way things are, you know, and especially if you bring up the Bible, you know, it's like, this is the way it has to be like this or else and very rigid. And, uh, but there's this almost more fluid way to engage, or you have to kind of, as Jonathan is famous for saying, like ride loose in the saddle of how this whole spiritual divine quality finds its foundation in the natural world and in the word, um, and just time itself, like this is before, you know, you've got Einstein's theory of relativity that comes down the line in a, in a century or so. And we kind of have to hold our, our possessions kind of loosely, this whole like nature of the physical world. Yeah. And that the physical definitely exists to serve the spiritual. And that was yes. really maybe even Swedenborg's audience because here he is yeah. being, there's a request out to defend yourself to these physical people. And he's in the moment there, writing it out. And an angel says, hey, switch it to this. That'd be so much cooler for correspondences. Okay. Yes. <laughs> All right. Sounds right. good. You know, he, that he takes was, priority. That was so much more his peer group, I think, uh, at that time. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's interesting. That's great. Well, yeah, so fascinating. I feel like some... Uh, you know, interesting sort of takeaways we could get from this little oddity of the past where Swedenborg's birthday, January 29th, 1688. Is it really February 8th with a spiritually 1689? <laughs> uh, we don't know, but it's, um, it's, it's sure fun to talk about it with both of you. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, so... Thanks, Curtis and Jonathan, and I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next time inside Off the Left Eye. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. Subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to be notified every time a new episode comes out. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offthelefteye.com. 
If you want to go the extra mile, you can rate us on Apple Podcasts and leave a review, which helps others find the show. But you know, having you there listening is a real form of support in and of itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. Thank you.